it's actually been a massive learning curve. I, I can't even express the mistakes we've made in, in our journey, but it's only sort of, I guess, cemented our commitment. Hi there, food enthusiasts. My name is Chris Reschkowski, your host again today for the Future Foodcast, where we talk with thought leaders in today's food industry and discuss the trends, of <laughs> trends and technologies that will shape the future of food. I'm really excited to be speaking with Carla Furster from Frog Friendly Wild Coffee today. I had a great chance to uh, do an initial sort of intro call with her some weeks ago. And I think this is gonna be one of the, the better podcasts that we can put together. She's got such a great product and such a great mission. Um, welcome to the show today. Thank you, it's great to be here. Excellent. Well, as I sort of uh, stealing some of your thunder here and uh, speaking about you, you have actually an amazing origin story, an amazing product, an amazing connection with the product from you know the, the growing of it all the way to the selling and marketing of it. But you know maybe to ground our um, our audience here, you know give us a little bit of an introduction to your background and what you were doing that brought you up to starting this company, Frog Coffee. Absolutely. Um, I was actually, I've been very blessed. I've got uh, two parents that were completely outside the box thinkers and uh, were sort of globalists before we became aware of the globe. And their mission in life, other than their professional careers, was exploring Mexico. And so from a very young age, we would head down to Mexico on any cheap flights available into whatever nondescript airport they could find us. A, you know, a, a landing place. And I uh, would just bounce around Mexico for the winter months. And we happened upon Puerto Escondido, Oaxaca when I was a young teenager, I think I was 13. And from that first trip, um, we grew roots. My parents uh, with my uncle actually purchased a home there. And our nomadic sort of exploring Mexico way came to a pause. And uh, Oaxaca is incredibly special to me. It's, it's literally where my soul lives. And I've had enough sort of unique personal experiences there to know that without doubt, this is my destiny and what I'm meant to be doing. Um, my, my family are not missionaries. I always have to state that very clearly. They're, you know, spiritual and, and aware and, and what have you, but they're definitely not missionaries. What they are is just um, incredibly passionate about the Mexican culture and, and hikers. So a lot of our time was spent exploring the mountains in Oaxaca. And one of the most polarizing things as a young person was the level of starvation in incredible Willy Wonka wonderland of natural food and just the hardship of life and the lack of support. And when you look at that on the flip side from a, a food perspective, we're so disconnected in that, you know, when we go and buy our wonderful, sanitized, appealing bag of coffee in the grocery store, we are disconnected and, and unaware and we don't have that opportunity to make a better choice. And mm -hmm. uh, so my parents actually started bringing this, this wild coffee home in garbage bags uh, when we would return so we could continue to enjoy the coffee at home. And it's uh, Ethiopian Arabica that was introduced by the Spanish and it is naturalized in the cloud forest in San Juan Lachau where we harvest our coffee. It's incredibly special in that it's sort of nature taking over and providing this extreme biodynamic setting for a commercial enterprise. Mm. Um, and so the coffee, um, I actually brought some back. I was managing a plant nursery in White Rock and I brought some back and my boss tried it. This was over a decade ago. 
And he looked at me after spending so much time telling me I was intended to be self-employed uh, that this was it. And I actually went home uh, for Christmas with my family and uh, Pedro, I'm sorry, I don't know if they're going to edit this. I'm just going to wind back. <laughs> um, Pedro, my hermano in Mexico, uh, who I grew up very close to and, and very, still very close to his family. And I started this with the intent of sort of proving through practice with zero business experience that we were going to make this our mission to a set an example in the mountains of how agroforestry can be successful in preserving their forest habitats versus burning them for cattle, which is a short-term focus. Um, and so we, he sent me a skid by air, um, I guess, 15 years ago, and it had been harvested and milled wrong. It had been roasted in the mountains in the camels over open fire, and we sold it all. And I went home for Christmas and hiked up with Pedro and just had this moment of this is it this is there's nothing that we're meant to be doing more and uh, we've been very blessed we've worked in the same community the entire time uh, with wonderful supportive community members um, they are the last of the Olmec and southern Zapotec tribes and Miztecs and their culture is profound um, eight years ago we took a big leap of faith and we actually bought our own piece of the forest and it uh, has taken a lot of work and a lot of investment. And I really understand why there's only five coffee importers in Canada <laughs> because the cost of farming coffee is extreme. The cost, the cost of doing it in a ethical and responsible way is extreme. But I think mm -hmm. the aspirational profit of doing it right trumps the cost of the effort. Yeah. So you essentially have been in this business since you were a teenager, but you didn't know it until <laughs> yeah, 10 or 15 I guess, years I guess ago. I was going to say, whoa, you think I'm way younger than I actually am. Um, yeah, I guess, you know, absolutely. Um, you know, I, I bounced around in many sorts of jobs from working as a plumber, working as a landscaper, a gardener, working as a chaplain. And I think I was always searching for something that a satisfied my desire for manifesting for you know that long-term commitment to a project um, and something that really gave me that opportunity to live my values out loud to mm -hmm. literally respond to the world around me in a really positive way yeah so you have a, a pretty special situation in the food supply chain for your product where essentially you are working on both ends of ends of it you are yeah. on the origin the production side and also on the on the sales side, the final processing and sales side. So all the way from Oaxaca, Mexico, to where you live in Western Canada in British Columbia, um, that is a pretty special and unique position, and gives you a tremendous, I would say, um, understanding of the value along that supply chain. And your focus on sustainability, of course, is perfect for the future foodcast. Tell us a little bit about your feelings and kind of the situation on the production side and the sustainability, both you mentioned agroforestry, but also with the people that are working there to produce the product. And how are you sort of cooperating with them to have social and environmental sustainability? Oh, absolutely. It's actually been a massive learning curve. I. I, I can't even express the mistakes we've made in, in our journey, but it's only 
sort of, I guess, cemented our commitment. And I guess, you know, having established such close relationships to a region, I've been blessed that when we've made mistakes, we've had such uh, compassionate partners there to work through and, and resolve. I think one of the biggest challenges that I've learned in coffee farming and growing is, and it's not even unique to us, but one thing that hasn't changed in coffee that I think is should alarm all consumers is that the ratio of margin for the coffee farmer and the re retailer in the 1970s was one to four, one for the farmer, four for the grocery store. And we're now 2021 and we're in a situation where it's now one to eight. And so the coffee farmer isn't receiving sort of a fair return to be able to have the options to be more ethical or sustainable in a general mm -hmm. sense. I mean, we're very blessed in, you know, we do it our way. We don't work in the commodities market and we don't base our pricing on the commodities market. I mean, I'm, I'm so excited that coffee prices are so high right now. Um, and I hope they stay there and I hope eventually they trickle down to the, the individuals harvesting the most labor intensive crop in the world. But it's super positive as long as it trickles down. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, there's, there are such huge challenges coming in coffee right now in that we are facing global shortages with global warming. Mm -hmm. uh, Brazil and Colombia have been getting hit with frost, which is destabilizing. And I think that consumers really need to look carefully in how they shop and their, their shopping habits in that we have to become reconnected to our food. We need to yeah. sort of move past the comfort of these wonderful comforting adjectives that were, you know, given on our packages and, and this sort of disconnect that I think food producers really want us to feel where I'm on the reverse side, where I control my whole supply chain, because I think we should, you know, it's about maximum standards. And it really surprises me that um, people in our business roll out for minimum standards for a lot of bed when I think that, you know, I can't get out of bed without being committed to doing it all the way, which I think mm -hmm. really speaks to why we control our entire supply chain. Yeah, um, but I, I think in really being able to connect people's is, um, is an issue of transparency and uh, uh, frankly, the technical ability to do that. And certainly you've got, you have no problems with transparency, but how that transparency is affected, um, I would definitely want to talk more about because, um, you know, I mentioned to you before we started recording this podcast um, from our first call, I'm now a great lover of frog friendly wild coffee. Um, I actually went out and bought myself a conical burr grinder and, you know, your fresh beans and, and it's amazing, but even though I have a tremendous interest in this space and the sustainability of food and supply chain and now this particular product, um, it, it's still challenging, I think, for someone to really understand where is this product coming from? Um, not everybody gets a chance to interview you like this and have this great discussion. And we're looking for ways, you know, how does technology enable a person, whether they're shopping on, you know, e-commerce website or going into a bricks and mortar store, that they can look at a bag of your product or an advertisement and say, I actually know where this came from. I know the people and that's partly why I'm buying it. And how do you see that being important to your business, communicating that to the end buyers? Mm -hmm. You know, that's something I'm working really hard to wrap my head around. Um, you know, honestly, 
online sales and the technology side of our business is something that I'm learning as fast as I can. But I think one of the biggest challenges in our business is, is technology in that we're living in this divisive world right now where we question fact, mm -hmm. where we've become suspect. And I think that a brand like ourselves I think it's probably going to be our biggest challenge is breaking through that noise, mm -hmm. you know, especially in coffee. Coffee is, is full of comfortable marketing that isn't always reflective of reality. And, mm -hmm. you know, we all we embrace certifications like fair trade, which, you know, like Starbucks, if we weren't aware of them, if they hadn't have started in the 70s, I don't believe we would have specialty coffee with where it's at. Mm -hmm. But on the flip side, you know, fair trade is is honestly having a crisis of quality right now because the commodities market for coffee is so high. If you were a coffee farmer in Central America wanting to provide for your family, are you going to sell your best beans to fair trade? Are you going to sell your best beans to the open market where you can get a far better return? Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. And then also just that, again, you know, we're dealing with certifiers that provide a band-aid to consumers that are based on minimum standards. Mm -hmm. You know, the same with Rainforest Alliance. Rainforest Alliance is a, a certification that was created by our big commercial players to essentially greenwash, to create mm -hmm. a, a context where consumers felt warm and fuzzy. But that warm and fuzzy only goes as far as the grocery store. It doesn't, it doesn't translate to the experience at source for the people. Yeah. And, you know, like you said, there's a great commodification of everything, including, I would say, the concept of quality, not yeah. necessarily quality itself, and all sorts of greenwashing and ethical washing, et cetera, that goes on. And, you know, you know, a credit to you, if I was cruising through my, you know, Amazon website looking for a bag of coffee, your marketing, your, you know, product image is top notch. And, you know, nobody could say that they're, it would be hard, I think, for anybody to say that there was a, a $10 billion company behind this or a, you know, a $10 company behind it. It's, it's perfect. Everything is great. But that's, again, you said, as you explained, there's this skepticism of yeah. there's a lack of trust out there. And that's what I see a lot of, especially small to medium-sized entrepreneurs in the food space trying to penetrate through. How do you bring that authenticity of what you're doing, what your life passion is in this product so that a consumer can understand it. And that's, again, bringing transparency to that supply chain mm -hmm. is really something that we're, I think, starting to figure out how to do. Well, and I think it's moving away from this sort of perspective of, you know, that 1980s polished marketing feel where it's like, just say whatever you have to and they'll buy it. And I think that that's, you know, we're coming into, I feel really strongly and hopeful for is an age where, brands are being presented and branded in a way that's real and relatable. You know, that's something that I think really sets us apart is that, you know, I actually did a TED talk on all the mistakes of building my brand. And I think that's important. I think it's important for consumers to not have this perspective that, you know, dedicating your life to building a, a compassionate relationship, transparent brand is easy. And I think that's one of the challenges in our food businesses that consumers go in and they see this gorgeous package of whatever food or beverage product. And it's so comforting and so professional and so warm. And the branding is so 
you know, right on and polished that mm-hmm. consumers aren't aware of that incredible brand story that often is behind those products. You know, when we're talking about non-multinational food products. Right. Um, and I think that, you know, I, I would almost make that a call to action to other founders and manufacturers is, is to make it a little bit more real. Mm-hmm. To not try to be this polished, you know, apple that's that's so great, but then you bite into it and it's like, oh. <laughs> right. And that's, I, I definitely see that happening, um, especially from on the entrepreneur side, the smaller, small, medium-sized entrepreneurs. They're, frankly, a good part of their marketing effort is trying to bring authenticity, authenticity of themselves, transparency, even to their own lives, something sometimes into their product. And um, we see all sorts of different technologies coming into play. And we talked about this maybe in our original column, putting QR codes on products, being able to, consumer being able to scan that and see something there. But it always has to be more than just a, a certificate, certificate of okay. fair trade approval for the source of this coffee. Yep. That by itself is important. But then again, how do people trust that? Oh, absolutely. And then I think also the other challenge is that we're in the time of COVID where we're so limited. I mean, I can speak from our challenges right now in not being able to be at source uh, with our people is generating authentic, genuine content when you're not there for those re- real-time images. And I think, you know, it's funny, but I'm sort of that grassroots girl in how I see the world and how I interact. And I think the most exciting marketing that I have sort of been experiencing recently is actually people that are on holidays in Oaxaca that reach out to us to go up and check out the, the forest farm. And that to me is like absolutely thrilling because I always tell them it's, it's raw, it's a forest, Mm-hmm. real you know and they ultimately come back as my greatest brand ambassadors because mm-hmm. they come home from that experience and they talk and they talk and they talk and they share yeah and this this is i think part of what um, companies trying to capture and essentially put into their brands so you actually have brand ambassadors that are if you will organically grown and yeah. yes <laughs> capturing awesome. you know capturing a sound bite from them a video bite when they're in the forest Mm-hmm. Next to a coffee tree that is a source for your coffee, I think is going to be very powerful. And yeah. but and then being able to associate that with the supply chain, and then all the fancy words of blockchain and mm-hmm. distributed, you know, everything in the world. Those technologies are behind the scene making this happen. But it's that content that you create to put, you know, yeah, well on top of that technology that's important. For sure. And like I said, that's something that I'm really struggling to learn. I find that my email inbox is just inundated with all these people that, you know, promise me to, to give me that online answer to being able to get my message through. And you know what I've, I've come to realize is I'm somebody with a really strong uh, relationship with my internal voice. But one of the problems with having a really strong relationship to your internal voices is, is that you self-edit, right? Mm. And so it's allowing myself to just put myself out there and share the story and mm-hmm. not be so concerned about is my hair done you know? right. <laughs> you know? that humble pie you know you know individuals always say that to me oh you're such an extrovert it's like no I'm sort of an introvert that's you know compelled to be an extrovert <laughs> yeah well another I want to go back and touch on another statistic that you had brought up and the uh the sale dis- sale price disparity between farmers and retailers. Mm-hmm. And I think everyone understands and accepts that by the time a product gets to a retailer, it sells more for more than what the original producer was selling it at. That's basic economics. 
But we see this across the board, I think, well, in almost all products mm -hmm. that are grown these days, that that spread has increased. And as you explained, going from one to four to one to eight, um, whereas the real re retailer making, well, say charging eight times more for the product than the farmer is getting. Mm -hmm. And I think that's probably for many coffee producers, it's even much more than that. You just well, happen to have, yeah. Yeah, well, we're actually, there's a, there, it's a, a fundamental issue that we're having in North America and, I, and, it, and it starts at the grocery store, unfortunately. And I always think about it and I spend a lot of time thinking about how um, corporations, or, or I guess the corporations role in our lives and, and what the intent of a corporation is. And you can really, once you sort of embrace and understand that intent of a corporation, which is infinite profit growth, Mm -hmm. You can see what's happened in our grocery world and why that pricing disparity exists because the lion's share of that margin is the grocery store. Mm -hmm. And so when you think about like the national, I'm not going to name names because I'll just get myself in trouble. But, um, you know, when you look at some of the national grocery chains, you know, they have incredible uh, margin demands. So, you mm -hmm. know, the big players take 45 margin points and that's that's not a percent, that's a margin point. So that's its own formula. Mm -hmm. And um, it's, it's really interesting because, you know, the, most of the grocery stores in Canada are multinational corporate owned or Canadian corporation owned, and they are beholden to their shareholders for infinite profit growth. And so what happens is, you know, at any corporation, you start and you grow on natural growth and, and low hanging fruit. And then once that dries up, you start with promotions and things to, to extend that life. And once you, you're at maturity, as far as market share, your next area to create the perception of infinite profit growth is you're going to attack your own employee base and you're going to ask them to do more with less. Mm -hmm. And you're going to flatline. And once you've done that and, and done a reorganization, your next focus is going to be your, your vendors, your manufacturers, right. and, and how they come after us is in uh, MCBs and billbacks and mm -hmm. fees. Um, like if we make a spelling mistake on a line, line item, that we're potentially going to get charged $500. Um, it gets really, really goofy. And it's actually, uh, I would have to say that we're at a crisis point in Canada right now where I feel very strongly that uh, consumers, affordability is at risk, and also mm -hmm. a true sense of um, having an assortment of true choices that aren't all multinational food manufacturers. Mm -hmm. And you can see that playing out in the grocery aisle. You know, my husband is uh, an extreme craft beer drinker. And I always go out and I, I try so I don't drink beer. I'm a tequila girl. And so I'll go out and I'll, I buy I buy beer on the can, right? The, the marketing and the graphics. And I come home and so often he's like, Carla, you just bought Molson. Yeah. <laughs> you, know, you know, and that's, you know, that's the biggest challenge. And I, you know, it was funny. I, my national distributor sent me a picture a couple months ago of uh, a new set in a, a brand new grocery store in Winnipeg, a, a big national brand grocery store. And she sent it to me because it was polarizing because as a consumer going into just your grocery shopping, you would think that they had this incredible selection of coffee. Mm -hmm. But in truth, they actually only had four manufacturers on the shelf with 15 different brands. Right, right. Well, and this, I think, especially in this space where, you know, we have people focusing on local mm -hmm. uh, production, you know, entrepreneurs, craft products, yep. there's a very high sensitivity to that. But that's also part of what, you know, say this new era of technology is bringing to us in terms of 
you know, the concept of decentralization. And this becomes very techie and nerdy um, pretty quickly. But at, at the high level, what the whole intention of this is to try and decentralize power, decentralize resources so that we do have more choices. And, and one of the interesting things that I kind of wanted to ask your opinion on, especially in products like coffee and chocolate, or high value products that are consumers of those products seem to be very interested in the origin of where they're coming from, the story of the people producing them, maybe the hardships, maybe I should buy from this company and not from that company. What is your thinking on what if you were able to, what if a consumer is able to reach back through you, if you will, okay. through your supply chain directly to the farmer? And of course, they don't have the ability to, you know, there's no sourcing or buying there, but to understand who that is, and maybe even beyond that, impact them financially. What if you could tip your farmer, for example? Yeah, that, you know what? That's such a funny thing that you have brought that up. We're actually, um, I shouldn't even be sharing this, but we are actually launching uh, a new coffee brand this spring uh, related to frog, but it really is that answer to that in that um, one of my heroes and living folklore heroes is uh, Juan Laura, and he leads 60 cooperatives in Mexico and Central America. And mm -hmm. his mission is life is, is in service to his people. And the things that he guarantees to the cooperatives that he leads is a living wage reflective of their local economy, access to healthcare, access to schools, mm -hmm. um, and these basic things where small-scale farmers can have access to a quality of life that we all deserve. Yeah. Yeah. And so, but one of my frustrations and why I'm sharing this is that one of my biggest angst right now is our dependency on the phrase direct trade. You know, with only five importers in Canada, very few of the coffees you're going to buy in the grocery store are going to be direct trade. Right. <laughs> you know? And so this for me is bringing it on steroids where each bag of coffee is going to take you directly to the farm, to the growers, to the workers, where consumers will have a clear picture of exactly mm -hmm. what they've get, been paid as in a return and mm -hmm. what those those social benefits are in, in a real relevant maximum standard way. Mm -hmm. and, so how uh, are you doing? How are you achieving that? Well, Juan Laura is a okay. very close colleague of mine. Um, he's been my mentor for a long time. And uh, he, to me, is, you know, if Juan Valdez was a, a real individual who had committed his life to his people, he's, he's, mm -hmm. absolutely, he's absolutely remarkable. And he has been sort of working around this project for a number of years, but of course, you know, super busy. He is literally in the service of his people at, at his source communities is, you know, we just saw an opportunity in our marketplace to sort of launch uh, an ethical coffee on steroids and help him complete this project because he is, the, the program is called Native Sun and he is the Native Sun. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's launching the spring and we're very excited because it really is that, uh, that next answer as far mm -hmm. as transparency, but also matching the ethics of frog coffee in that it's, you know, all forest shade, true shade coffees that are mm -hmm. impacting, you know, real struggling indigenous communities that deserve our support and our focus. Yeah. So let's, let's uh, play out this scenario here and maybe flow with what you're already doing or just this envisioned future where I'm able to go to 
either a store or buy something on Amazon, I can scan a QR code and I can say, wow, this is pretty cool. I'm going to send a dollar to this farmer. Mm-hmm. Do you, what do you think, what kind of impact do you think that could have, good or bad? Well, I think you have to be very careful. And that's something that I've had to learn in my time in Mexico is I, you know, I'm, I'm generous by at fault, I guess my generosity level is, and I've learned from being in Mexico and those experiences in the mountains is, you know, my, I I never barter. Like I just, you know, I just want to give. And so when I'm in the mountains and I see a need or I'm eating in a, in a small taqueria, you know, I over tip, I over tip all the time. And I don't think we appreciate in our culture, the discord that that causes. Mm-hmm. And so do I, th- I think, you know, I think it would be amazing for consumers to be able to tip their coffee farmers, but would have to be done in a way that I believe is project-based where you have real goals and concrete projects. I think if you were just to start sending money down, it would be incredibly disruptive and yeah. counterintuitive and, and not helpful at all, but it would have, you know, in an organized way where there's identified projects, amazing. Yeah, there's a common phrase, it's uh, no good deed goes unpunished. And <laughs> this is one of those situations where it sounds like a great idea, yeah. but sociologically, weird things can happen in this case. And so, and you're speaking from experience on the ground there. Of oh, absolutely. I've, I've disrupted communities. <laughs> and, you know, and again, like those learnings, those mistakes, those humble moments where your goodwill uh, creates more damage than good, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it sounds like your guidance for if in a scenario where this is possible, um, the best thing to do is essentially find a trusted intermediary, yep. you know, respected, um, for example, Juan Laura is one exactly. that you found yep. as um, really a repository for, if you will, these tips, and that that can then go to the community. Yeah. And it's, you know, the individuals like, you know, like Juan Laura, I mean, the greatest thing about him, I find is that, you know, and, and I, you know, he really speaks to my soul because, you know, he's a lot further along in his journey of, of what his legacy looks like. You know, he's in his early sixties, I'm in my mid forties, but you know, he, he is so, you know, and I love it because when you are on your path and you are living your passion and you have your mission, your return is aspirational. It doesn't matter how much your paycheck is, mm-hmm. what you're doing, it, it fills your soul. And, uh, you know, I, I hope to one day be like Juan and where you're just, you're just living so inspired and so free where, you know, if, if there's a community in need, Juan just gives, it's, it's not about his bills or his needs. It's, you know, and I think if we could, if we could almost get like a majority of the world on that path where we move beyond our self-interest and, and look at right. the greater community and, you know, what our code is like, you know, cause I think, you know, people like Juan Laura probably wouldn't like stand out like they do if we were mm-hmm. all sort of connected and knowing in what our personal code, our, our personal beliefs are and how we conduct and how we live and, and how we purchase. Yeah. Well, I think one of the reasons that this discussion with you, I think is so powerful in my opinion is that we're not talking about all the levers and wheels of technology, but really the impact of actions, um, technology can take care of um, facilitating that, but really the impact of actions and what these actions should be. And you have a great example of Juan Laura on, I would say the producer side of that person is able to affect sort of economic 
influence and improvement based on, for example, working with your company. Yeah. Now, if you flip that over and you look at it from the consumer side, um, a person that doesn't know anything about, doesn't even know there is a supply chain. As far as they know, the beans fall out of the sky in BC and you roast them and throw them in beautiful bags and they get delivered in a truck the next day. Um, what do you see from the consumer side is that that vision, what should the consumer be able to do to participate in a sustainable and healthy ecosystem? Well, I think first consumers need to start accepting groceries are going to cost more. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that's, you know, right now, I mean, I can, I can promise you by the end of this year, a bag of coffee is going to cost you two pounds more or $2 mm-hmm. more per pound. Right. That's a guarantee. But I'm buying more today. I'm, I'm buying yeah. as much. <laughs> No, but that's exciting. Price is going up. That's really exciting. Um, but you know, I think how, how consumers can and be meaningful in their purchases is, is you know, I think working hard to direct some of their purchases to truly independent grocery stores. You know, that that is a crisis that we do have in our country right now. Mm-hmm. We have one uh, Western Canadian grocery chain that actually owns seventy percent of all the grocery stores in Western Canada, mm-hmm. and so that's concerning because their their buying is about their profit. They're not buying for selection for consumers. Right. So I think if you know consumers can investigate and and I also feel strongly that consumers need to start challenging their grocery stores, asking for the products they want to see, you know, mm-hmm. requesting products that reflect their values. You know, we mm-hmm. live so insularly and we order, you know, with COVID we order our groceries online and we're so disconnected. But nothing changed. Nothing changes unless we mm-hmm. push it or unless we inquire, right? Mm-hmm. Like people are always so surprised. Oh, Carla, why aren't you in my brand in Manitoba grocery store? Damn it, ask for me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and that's great. And then I think, but I also believe, I think yeah. consumers need to start reading labeling. Um, I, I have to share with you, like my husband will not grocery shop with me because it takes so long. Because one of my key passions is is food marketing for you know the positives and the negatives and. Food park, food uh, marketing is is hilarious. I mean, it is, it's so funny to me how far we've come from sort of being, you know, anchored to truth in what we share for our packaging. And I, I'm going to share one example for you because it's got nothing to do with coffee. Is um, I love ice cream. It's like one of my greatest weaknesses in life. And I had a good chuckle just a little while ago. While I was standing in the grocery store and I was looking at all the different brands, and there was Briars, and I was like, oh, you know it's on sale and then I look and there's this this star on the front of it and it says featuring real ingredients <laughs> well what is it <laughs> you know in another one is there's this cheese product in the dairy aisle and it actually has no dairy in it it's not even cheese but they have trademarked the phrase in parenthesis real cheese <laughs> so, yeah. you know, I think consumers have to become less complacent. They really need to start vocalizing their wishes, what they want to find in their local grocery stores, because I can tell consumers right now, we're in a place where most grocery stores, if you go into their stack aisle, that whole aisle of chips is owned by two manufacturers. Yep. And, you know, I would actually make the argument that I think that has happened and is happening and I, I actually, and maybe it's because I'm a technology nerd, I believe it's happening through technology coming out that we've touched upon here, which is sort of these decentralized systems yeah. that don't concentrate power. And, you know, it, it doesn't happen that companies that are huge and successful change because of the good of anyone, anyone other than their pocket. And that's not their fault. 
Um, yep. That is the way the economy is set up. Yep. And recognizing that, I think, has been part of the power of decentralization. And you're already going down that path with the projects that you're doing. In fact, going all the way to the origin of your company and now working with individuals like Juan Laura to give back, not even give back, to, I would say, properly... Have a fair um, supply chain. Right. And that is actually being enabled um, outside of a case where you just do a ton of heavy lifting by yourself, which is what you're doing. Yeah. Um, that is... I going to be enabled on a large scale by this distributed capability to reach out, have transparency and see what's going on because, you know, the consumers today, if that it's, it'll probably get to a point where if that transparency is there, they're not even going to buy it. If they can't scan a QR code mm -hmm. and really understand what's happening, it was like, well, maybe, maybe they don't want me to know. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, for us, I know that our, a huge focus for us, you know, we, we love our retailers and we love our customers that support the grocery stores, but the future for brands like ourselves is direct to consumer online based. Mm. And so yeah. absolutely QR codes, you know, um, really thoughtful Instagram stories. I'm trying mm. to wrap my head around TikTok. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's all coming along and your, your product is uh, doing amazing out there. And I think certainly acting as a thought leader through real results. And uh, I, for one, am appreciative of it. As you, as we know, I'm consuming it now on a daily basis. <laughs> this is great. Wonderful. I think, you know, so much of what our brand, you know, um, it, it, it's great coffee. I mean, it's the only coffee that like just gives me this extreme sense of comfort. And I like to think a lot of it is karma that our extreme focus on quality and every step of our supply chain mm -hmm. has sort of given us this golden goose. Um, yeah. but it, it's pretty special and knowing that we have a coffee out there, that's also safe for people with stomach problems is, is mm. pretty heartening. Yeah. Well, congratulations. Me, thank you. Bye. And you know what? I just, I think it's just awesome that I get to spend my days living my values out loud. And I just wish more would join me. Well, I think they are. And, uh, hopefully, uh, your product will keep up with the hordes of people that are chasing it. Um, but I'm going to go out and buy my extra few bags <laughs> soon awesome. based on this discussion. But thank you very much for being with us today, um, Carla, with the uh, Frog Friendly Wild Coffee. Really amazing product. Um, if you don't have a conical burger grinder, I'm telling you right now, go out and buy one so that you can grind your coffee fresh. I, I learned that way over the last month. Um, thanks again for being here. We look forward to talking to you again. Thank you, Frog On. Thanks for listening to Future Foodcasts. Future Foodcasts is powered by Farm to Plate, the leading food blockchain platform. Subscribe on YouTube or wherever you listen to podcasts to stay up to date with the very latest innovations in the food industry. 